Thank you for listening to this podcast from Emanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you would like to learn more about Emanuel or find more resources like this one, visit our website at emanuelbirmingham.com. All right, let's pray, everybody. Um, Father, thank you so much for being our God and our Father. Even, even as we hear the worship team playing, we recognize that your praises are rising to your ears like a, a sweet offering and aroma. And so would you receive their worship and our worship even now in a different way? Um, we love you and we want to be more like you and we want to make a difference for you. And so help us do the hard work in here so that we can, um, you know, fulfill the mission and the calling that you've given us, God. So be with our minds now and our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. There is some paper. Awesome. Um, Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Equip Class, where we've been studying and working through public theology. Now, there's some people who weren't here last week and some who were here last week. I'll take care of that. Don't worry about it. Um, and uh, I did not record last week, so everyone listening at home or in your car right now, I apologize. I know several of you are. Um, and I just wonder whether or not somebody who was here last week can try to summarize what we talked about at all, maybe? Hopefully. Okay. Well, no worries. We uh, we just did an overview last week of uh, something called theological anthropology. Um, and the reason that we did this overview last week is because we've been walking through, I say walking through the Bible, the, the, the big storyline of Scripture, Um, thinking about public theology and all the different topics that then come up out of that. But we haven't actually made it past Genesis yet. So we're just still in Genesis talking about the different features of Genesis that have bearing on the world. So we've talked about economics because of the superabundance of God's goodness in creation, um, despite the scarcity that comes from the fall. And uh, and now we're going to spend several weeks talking about uh, what it means to be made in the image of God, to uh, what does human flourishing look like is the big question of the next several weeks. Um, because as we engage in the world, as we engage with our neighbors, and they have all kinds of different visions of what the good life looks like for them, whether that is tied to their um, you know, view of money or their view of sex or sexuality or whatever it might be, um, the question the question comes down to what is human flourishing? And so we can't really engage meaningfully other than maybe telling them that they don't live a biblical lifestyle or something like that. So here's a few few verses or something. And we're just not in a cultural place where that's going to have much, you know, meaning or value anymore. It's not that the Bible isn't still powerful and effective, but we also have to do a little bit of translating, if you will, of the values of the Bible and make the connections for people who won't otherwise be able to recognize them at face value. Um, and so uh, 
for so many of these conversations, it's an issue of starting with what does it mean to flourish? And um, in order to, to know what it means to flourish, you have to know who you are and what you were made for. Um, and so, hence us talking about theological anthropology. What are we? What are we as people? Um, what's wrong with us? And, uh, and how does that play out in so many different areas and topics, okay? Um, and so we did an overview last week, and I can try to put that overview online in terms of the outline. I'd intended to record some, but that never really worked out um, this week. So, yeah. Uh, so we're going to start today with um, what does it mean to be a person? That simple question, what does it mean to be a person? Um, um, so if you're following along on the outline, if you're riding along in your car, don't follow along on the outline. Um, but I'd like to start with something that John Calvin said. Uh, John Calvin, famous Reformation theologian, lived in the 16th century. Um, we all wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Martin Luther and John Calvin. Um, and John Calvin starts his magnum opus, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, this two-volume, one-volume, depending on where you buy it from, set of his take on Christian theology. And he opens like this. Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. The question, though, is where do we begin with that knowledge? Where do we begin? Do we start with God or do we start with ourselves? And can you do one without the other, rightly? Um, so I'd like to kind of start by looking at different competing conceptions today of what it means to be a person, what it means to be made in the image of God, um, and then next week, Lord willing, we will look at kind of a biblical foundation, okay? Um, so we'll sketch out a, a biblical image of the image of God. Today we're going to look at um, kind of a biological definition, a theological definition, and a philosophical definition. And by definition, I just mean what people have said in these different categories, uh, i.e. biology, uh, theology and philosophy. Okay, so we're going to basically approach this like it's um, like a, it's a big clump of dough, and we're going to be kneading the dough together. Um, it's going to feel gritty. It's a little raw because I'm thinking through this uh, in a raw sort of way. And so, stop me at any point along the way. I'm not putting forward today what I think is you know the best or holistic definition of what it means to be a person. I'm just showing you kind of the, the intellectual landscape for the last, you know, 2,000 some odd years from these different vantage points. Again, biologically, theologically, and philosophically. All right, you with me? Questions? Concerns? What are you thinking about right now as I have laid out the plan for the next 30 minutes or so? Yes? Please ask, say more. <clears throat> what do you mean, what is the purpose well, of doing? We're looking at all these different, are, are we looking for truth? We, we, we will find truth along the way. Well, that's what I'm wondering, because we're looking at all these different things, and I know that as believers, we don't believe all of this. Correct. 
so I'm wondering what is the purpose of looking at this just to see what's all out there? Yeah, so we could just spend our time looking at what I would propose as being like what we should believe. Um, the problem is we don't readily recognize what all of the other beliefs are that surround us every day, the people that we talk to. And so if we can't understand where they're coming from, we don't have much of a hope to bridge the gap between the, for many of them, the far distance of where they are to where we are. And then even some of what we'll look at today that I would say is not good or helpful or right, we actually have been trained and molded in our culture to believe ourselves. Even if maybe intellectually we say we don't believe that, we act this way. Um, and so it's important to survey kind of this history of thought because we're going to find resonances both in ourselves, if we're honest, and in many of the people that we have conversations with every day, especially when we kind of get to the end here of today's talk. Um, I'll kind of make the case of here's where I think we are today, just generally as a culture, okay? Thank you. That helps set my mind. Good. I thought that, that, I thought that a helpful question would come out of this. All right. What else are you thinking? Anybody else need that kind of steering um, to better set the context of why or what we're doing? Okay. All right. So um, <clears throat> if you need me to drill down further or spend longer somewhere, um, please stop me. Like you can just, you don't have to raise your hand, just, just speak up or whatever. Um, but with the time that we have, I'm going to kind of move at a, at a brisk pace. And I expect you to stop me if you're like, okay, I, I'm not quite tracking. All right. All right. So first of these competing conceptions of what it means to be a person or the image of God in theological language, um, we're going to start talking about biology. So in one view, um, to be a person is to, um, to achieve something. So personhood is something that one achieves, uh, biologically speaking. And so what do I mean by that? Um, well, there's, uh, what is that, six, six kind of features that when all put together, um, you know, many would argue a person is a person because of. And so consciousness, uh, consciousness of things external and in internal to oneself, especially the ability to feel pain. Okay, so you have conscious awareness at some level of things outside of yourself and inside of yourself. And one of the ways that's manifested is in the ability to feel pain. Um, the ability to reason. Okay, so reasoning is something that sets us apart from other creatures um, and gives us kind of special status. Uh, Self-motivated activity. So I can do things purely because I want to do them, not because I'm driven by instinct to do them necessarily. I can even contravene or contradict some instincts. Um, the ability to communicate with an infinite number of contents and topics. So I can, so that's taking the reasoning piece and it's, um, and it's saying, I can't, I don't just have the ability to think about those things, but I actually can create a complex uh, system for conveying that reasoning ability, that rational ability. It's called communication. And in, in this room, it's English, you know, um, we can speak we can orate, we can use words that we've created as symbols to convey meaning of things that we think and feel and care about. We can also write those things down. And then also the presence of self-concepts and self-awareness. Uh, so 
um, you know, Descartes, as we'll see in a minute, I think therefore I am, like I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm aware that I am in existence, you know? Um, and so these kind of, what is that, one, two, three, four, five things, um, uh, some would say is what makes a person a person. And if you lack one of these things, then your personhoodness uh, is called into question. And so um, this is this entire section here about biology is going to come back again when we talk about abortion, when we talk about you know physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia. Um, so it's important to kind of we'll bring this up again, but to think about what a lot of people are functioning with in our society when they think about what is a person. When you think from a purely biological level, which most of people in our society, I say that, that's probably an over-exaggeration. Most of the um, affluent, um, educated class of Americans have a, um, a naturalistic worldview, meaning that there is no kind of God out there. There's nothing you know, external to the cre kind of the world that we live in, what I can see, taste, touch, and smell that kind of world. So there is a, um, there is a natural explanation for everything. And evolution is the, the, the kind of the centerpiece of that worldview where, um, the way that things have come about is through a somewhat, not somewhat, a very theoretical, um, observation of the development of organisms. And we are just another feature of that, you know, millennia, much longer than that, millions upon millions of years process. Um, and so therefore, personhood is something that is not granted just because you have a set of genes. Um, okay, so. Uh, Why, or is the first one there a definition that you pull from somewhere else, especially the ability to feel pain? And why pain? Why not joy? Because pain seems like a given, and joy seems like the exception. Unless we look at it from a biblical view, where joy is the given and pain is the exception. Yeah, so the question is why, number one, have I pulled this from somewhere else? And then number two, you know, why is pain on the list as opposed to like joy? It says especially the ability to feel pain. So that seems like it's a, it's a definitive marker of humanhood so, or personhood. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I don't know the, the specific answer to that. Um, I'm, it's, this is coming from Marianne Warren uh, in a, uh, an article called On the Moral and Legal Status of Abortion, which is footnoted right there. Yeah, so that's, um, that's all, that's A, B, C, D, E um, points there under personhood is something achieved. So this is something that she lays out. Um, and so I can't speak um, for the exact like uniqueness of pain as one of those markers. Um, in my mind, just in the larger debate, when it comes specifically to abortion, um, you know, uh, pain is uh, the ability to feel pain like in utero is um, up until recently has been pretty debated. And, and there's honestly, you know, a lot of people who would still say, well, when you when we see the images that we've seen of, um, of children in utero um, being poked or prodded or whatever and kind of you know, recoiling, you know, that's not necessarily a sign of them feeling pain. All right, so this is a big conversation point um, around establishing what um, qualifies a person. Um, and why it's not something like joy is probably just because at that, 
at that stage of development, um, that's not something that can be sussed out as clearly. So it's specifically talking about that article and those findings, because I was viewing it of even animals feel pain. Mm -hmm. You step on your dog's foot and they squeal. Mm -hmm. But you cannot differentiate whether your dog feels joy, maybe. Yeah, no, that's that's helpful, yeah. That was where I was no, no, but that's helpful. Um, you know, the point is is taken that you know even animals seem to kind of have a, a pain function, um, and uh, and again, so the context here is this article is actually involved in an abortion debate specifically, and uh, and so pain not in and of itself is is isn't maybe significant, but when taken together with these other four factors, I think forms kind of a, a more cohesive argument. Does that make sense? So, but that's really, I mean, I, I think that's also perceptive to say, as we're thinking as Christians and we're thinking more holistically, not just about this one aspect of human life, you know, in utero, um, one of the defining features of us is that we can feel joy. That's not, that's not as readily obvious when you look at every other creature. Um, so that's good. That's helpful. Um, okay, so yeah, personhood is something achieved. Uh, second, personhood is socially conferred, and all I mean by that is that um, we decide as a society kind of who are people and who are not. Um, and it's through things like these five things laid out, um, but it is an ongoing conversation about what it actually means to be a person. Um, and so lots of literature out there, like someone like Peter Singer, who's a famous philosopher, um, who has some pretty radical views about, um, you know, I mean, he, he would even say that it's okay to kill infants, inf infanticide, um, because they have not achieved a, enough sentience to really be, qualify as, as people. Um, and so, and, and honestly, I mean, that's not illogical if coming from what are, you know, espouse worldviews by a lot of people. Um, he's just saying it, you know, he's just taking it to its logical end. Um, but all it says is it, it is kind of an ongoing discussion. Um, it, the personhood is gradual is another kind of perspective when you're thinking about biology. So, you know, you have kind of the, the development track of uh, a zygote, then an embryo, then a fetus, and then eventually you become an autonomous person once you've left your mother's womb kind of thing. Um, and so the question is, as Christians, uh, at what point uh, do we become made in the image of God? You know, is it at the zygote level, the embryo level? So zygote is, you know, uh, when the sperm fertilizes the egg. So it's that initial kind of stage there. Um, the embryos, when it actually takes on its own sort of, not form, that's probably not the right word because that kind of is a physical, spatial thing. Um, but it's no longer kind of just a fertilized egg. The egg is now a living thing of some sort, right? Um, and then the fetus has now a few weeks on, so that might have been like two to six or eight weeks at the embryo level. Fetus is now eight weeks and beyond. Um, and, you know, from that point forward, the embryo begins looking like an actual human being, um, all the way, obviously, until 40 weeks. Um, and then the baby is delivered, and so the question is, okay, at what point do, are we made in the image of God? Um, and, uh, but it, in terms of society, um, this is a gradual, you know, uh, 
this is a gradual achievement. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Like um, you're becoming more of a human person, not just a human or human potential, but a human person. Um, and then personhood is biologically determined, which is in another way, just kind of saying some of what I've already said, but to say that it is not just socially conferred, but that there are some who have biological definitions that when you hit objectively this point, you are a person. Okay. So, um, that's kind of mixed into a lot of what has been said already, but just, I'm trying to pull it out as a separate specific category that it's not like it's a gradual thing. Okay. Like. Um, or social gradual, but it is like there's a biological defining moment or whatever. Okay, so that's the biology. I think it would help me. I'm not looking at the notes. Maybe that would help too. But so when you talk about personhood today, all of this is talking about like abortion, right or wrong? Not all of this. Just this first section about biology is is very related to abortion. Um, physician-assisted suicide, uh, you could say infanticide, and um, in euthanasia. So all of these life issues that are dealing with the body and the capabilities of the body to determine whether or not someone is a person, okay? Um, so that's all this first section is related to. And we'll come back and tease out kind of more kind of theological implications of that, but I'm just laying out that there's a whole large swaths of society that can't really work in the theological category that we're about to step into right now and look at and survey the history of that. At best, they can work in the biological side and the philosophy side, which we'll get to in a moment, but can't do anything with the theology. So we have to address that lots of people only have the biological. Now, they, they use you know philosophy, but not intentionally, not sophisticatedly. All right. So they think, well, I'm a scientist. And so here's what I know. And therefore, you know, they draw these kind of conclusions. Um, and, and so lots of people are comfortable with, you know, describing and working with just scientific, medical, biological terminology to try to arrive at their answers. Does that make sense? So that's why it's its own separate category. And, it ten and because of that, it tends to relate most directly to these topics I just outlined. The next few won't be as so specific to those topics. Okay? Cool. We good? Yeah? All right. I, I never know if silence is a good thing or, or not. So, um, all right. So that's biology. Just a quick overview. And I may have butchered some of that because that I'm, not, I'm not that. I mean... I, I took biology in high school. I took one class, and I got out as fast as I could. Um, theology, I'm a little bit more competent and capable in. Um, okay, so theology, here's an overview, and we're just going to start, you know, in no particular place, but somewhat chronological, and I thought we would start with Pelagius. Anybody ever heard of Pelagius before? Okay, we have one Pelagius person, two. Okay, good. Um, Pelagius was a heretic. Well, let's just go ahead and start there. Um, he was a heretic. Um, he lived in 354 to 420 uh, AD, not BC. Um, so he lived AD in 320, so kind of early church-ish. Um, and, you know, we, we use the word heretic and we think of people with like pointy horns or ears and who were, you know, trying to intentionally undo the church or something. In fact, most heretics were um, people who, in their own way, loved the church and loved the Lord and got something really, really wrong. And the church had to reject it and they never recanted. OK, um, they weren't, you know, in one sense 
what we imagine them to be. And so Pelagius, I would say that's true of. He's really wrong, but don't imagine, you know, him holding a pitchfork, all right? So, um, so what did Pelagius think, okay? Pelagius thought that human nature is free and untouched by sin or weakness, okay? According to Pelagius and his disciples, every human being is born in the same state as Adam before the fall, free to choose good and gain eternal life or sin and eternal death. Um, He's famous for having said, God does not command us to do anything that we cannot do. All right. So for him, it seems unjust of God to ask of us something that we are not capable of doing, talking about morals. So think about Ten Commandments. If we can't actually keep the Ten Commandments or all of the other ones for that matter, um, then it seems unfair or unjust of God to do that. And that's not who his God was, quote unquote. Um, that's not how he read the Bible. So, And it's helpful to say that our doctrine of, um, of original sin was developing kind of at this point in history. So it wasn't like from the early, like, you know, the first century, you know, church in Acts, we had this developed, robust understanding of original sin, i.e. that when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3, that their sin nature got carried on through all of their progeny to us in this very day. You know, that is kind of a staple orthodox belief today, but that wasn't so clearly defined at that point in history. Um, and so he's grappling with this and it ends up being an agent um, of God's, um, you know, sovereign hand to help the church clarify what we should believe about this. Um, and so he's reading the Bible and saying, well, it's not like it says anywhere in the Bible that everyone has inherited a sin nature. Well, OK, so Romans five seems to be a pretty clear place. Um, but uh, <clears throat> but, you know, he has this other side of grace, what, how he understands the word grace. that's really different than us. OK. And so Romans five then doesn't isn't so clear anymore um, as it was or is maybe to us because of our understanding of grace, because <laughs> grace is a central feature of of Romans five. Um, Romans five talking about the first Adam and the second Adam, the second Adam being Christ and um, And so for him, God does not command us to do anything that we cannot do. We are all, every time we are born, we are born afresh into the garden, as it were, um, like Adam and Eve, equally capable of fulfilling the law or or failing in the law. Um, Questions about that? So I think it's important to say that there is in our world today, for not theological reasons, but because of coming out of the, um, the enlightenment period where we've kind of shed off the chains of religion, a lot of people would say that we are morally neutral creatures, um, that we can live a good life. We can do good things and maybe even be perfect potentially. I mean, I don't know that many people would make that claim, but they would just stop short of it. Um, and so it's important that even though the theo- theological piece has been severed or disconnected, um, this is still a view that is pretty dominant today. Does that make sense? Would, would Pelagius go so far as to say that anyone can find salvation apart from Christ? You know, that's a good question. Um, I, does anyone feel like they know the answer off the top of their head? The question was, do, would Pelagius go so far as to say that someone could find salvation apart from Christ? I think yes. 
but I can't in my mind recall a specific passage from which he would say that. Yeah. I think he would say it's possible, but it's not been achieved except through except by Christ. Okay. Christ was the one that made that perfect accomplishment. Yes. So Nathan, right? Yeah, Nathan uh, just said that um, he thinks that, yes, he would say it's possible, but it has not been achieved um, except through Christ at this point. Um, okay, Augustine follows up Pelagius. Uh, he's kind of a conversation partner with Pelagius um, at this time. So Augustine, St. Augustine, lived 354 to 430, and, um, and he is where mo- most of us will find our lineage theologically with Augustine. And um, in the garden, man carried about an animal body, this is Augustine, and felt in it no disobedience moving against themselves. This was the righteous appointment, that inasmuch as their soul had received from the Lord the body for its servant, as itself obeyed the Lord, even so its body should obey him and should exhibit a service suitable to the life given it without resistance." So before we even get to the sin discussion, he lays out a vision for what humanity is, and he kind of accents the soul as being maybe one of the chief distinguishers from the created order, the animal kingdom. Um, He says the body is made by God too, and it's important and it's good, so we are both soul and body, but you definitely see sort of a highlighting of the soul aspect um, in Augustine. And for Augustine, um, he is known for this kind of famous Latin phrase, uh, passe picare, passe non picare, which you can see in your notes there is able to sin, able not to sin. So this is pre-fall in the garden. This is how he understood Adam and Eve um, as being able to sin, but also able not to sin. All right. Um, After the fall, his theological dictum was this. Give what you command, you might put in parentheses, O Lord, and command what you will. So he's recognizing that as a result of the fall, we have fallen from grace. We have fallen from our natural state and now are inclined and and directed towards sin. That is kind of where we are. And so, yes, Lord, command whatever you will, but if you want us to be able to achieve that, you will have to provide the grace necessary to do so. Because we are fallen creatures and cannot obey the law apart from your help. You with me? So after the fall, then, the Latin phrase changes from passe picare, passe non picare, able to sin, able not to sin, to this non passe, non picare, not able not to sin, which is a negative way to say the positive is all you are able to do is sin. With me? Questions about Augustine? All right. This is a radical view in a kind of a Western, um, uh, Western secular culture today. Um, And this is somewhat radical among many other religious worldviews today, like Buddhism or Hinduism, okay? So having the view that we, from conception, inception, like are prone to sin, are directed towards sin, can only sin, 
This is a radical view of human nature. And I think even those of us who maybe were born into Christian homes or were raised, we, we felt not that that was the case. We knew we were sinners, but we would not have said maybe that before Christ, all we could do was sin. Okay, so no one's, you know, objecting here, so I'm going to keep going then. So uh, fast forward in time a little bit to the Reformation. So we moved from kind of early church days to the Reformation. I'm giving you the highlights, the big thinkers. Calvin, John Calvin, 1509-1564, he says this about personhood. He says, We cannot have a clear and complete knowledge of God unless it is accompanied by a corresponding knowledge of ourselves. This knowledge of ourselves is twofold, namely to know what we were like when we were first created and what our condition became after the fall of Adam. And so he talks about this in, in a few different categories. So first, he talks about the soul. He says, for although God's glory shines forth in the outer man, yet there is no doubt that the proper seat of his image is in the soul. He's picking up on Augustinian, Augustine. Um, Augustinian theology there, as we just saw, okay? So he's carrying forward this tradition from Augustine and highlighting the soul as one of the defining or distinctive features of what it means to be a person, which again, we live in a culture today that has no category for the human soul other than psychological terms, okay? So, um, which in Greek, soul, as we read in the New Testament, is the word psyche or psyche, which is where we get psych, soul, psychologies, the study of the soul. Um, but that's all done in materialistic sort of framework. So it's trying to better understand the brain chemistry, the firing of electrons, the, you know, all, all that stuff, right? Um, uh, so that's soul, but he also talks about the image of God. And he defines the image of God as being made up of primarily two kinds of gifts, the natural gifts and what he calls the supernatural gifts. So the natural gifts are um, sound understanding and integrity of heart. And then the supernatural gifts, he would say, is faith, love, holiness, and righteousness. Faith, love, holiness, and righteousness. And he says the, the effect of the fall on us, and I don't think this is in your notes, is it? Um, yeah, the effect of the fall on us is that we retain the natural gifts, but they are diminished and distorted. So our understanding is limited and diminished and distorted, and our integrity of heart, so that's our morals, are diminished and distorted. But they're still there. Will you tell us, what do you mean by sound understanding and integrity of heart? Yeah, so sound understanding would be like our rationality, Okay. Um, so our ability to think rationally, logically, the communication piece that we saw in, in one of the biological definitions, um, all of that, but it is now diminished and distorted. So it's still there, but it's not what it was. And then integrity of heart would be our moral faculties. Um, and so still there, but not what it was, significantly diminished and distorted. But the supernatural gifts, he says, are lost altogether in the fall. So faith, love, holiness, righteousness, you know, these things that we typically, if you're thinking biblically, would be like gifts of the Spirit, you know, um, those are gone and only are restored through Christ with the Spirit. All right, so that's a, you know, a highlight of the major theological sort of heritage 
um, that we're going to maybe, you know, bring some of that into our discussion of what the Bible says. Um, but that's what theologians have thought throughout the last 2,000-ish years. And I think we have just enough time to walk through some of this philosophy piece. And that's where we're going to start to see a lot of correspondence to what people think today who would not identify as being religious or let alone Christian. Okay? So starting with Aristotle. Aristotle is one of my faves. I'm, I'm a big Aristotle fan. I'm a fanboy. Um, Aristotle lived in 384 to 322 BC, roughly. Um, and so a good 300 some odd years before the coming of Christ. He's a big deal. Um, so it's basically uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle um, are the major classical thinkers that kicked off the Western intellectual tradition. And, um, and Aristotle is the third in that line because it, it actually, so Plato learned from Socrates and Aristotle learned from Plato and they all had their unique features. So Aristotle, this is what he has to say about man. He says, man is by nature a political animal. And when he says the word political, it's the Greek word polis, which means city. And it's, it's not when you think of politics today, it's not, you know, it's, the, it's not elephant versus donkey. It's not, you know, two-party system. It is that we have to, every society has to figure out how to organize itself in community together and form structures and rules and laws that help um, direct the society. And for Aristotle, he'll say direct the society toward the good, the ultimate good. Kind of like talking about God, but he wouldn't have he wouldn't conceived of of the good as God. Okay, um, he would have talked about virtue, and there is a highest virtue of the good, which makes all the other virtues good. Um, and so, man by nature is a political animal, and therefore, men, even when they do not require one another's help, desire to live together. Not um, wait, not but that they are also brought together by their common interests in proportion as they severally attain to any measure of well-being. This is certainly the chief end both of individuals and of states. Um, and so he's, I, what I'd like to highlight is that he's recognizing that we are communal creatures. Like So even someone who not, who's not operating under the light of Scripture can see by observation in man that we want to be with people that we crave community, and that this is everywhere seen. And that even when we don't have to, we still come together. And we come together around common interest. So that's a feature that I'm just highlighting. And now we could say more about what you know Aristotle thinks, but I'm taking something that I think is good and helpful out of Aristotle to highlight um, for us. But then you move to Cicero, who lived in 44 BC. So we move from a Greek to a Roman, he was very much influenced by Aristotle, and this is what he says about you know, humanity or human nature. He says, but the most marked difference between man and beast is this. The beast, just as far as it is moved by the senses and with very little perception of past or future, <laughs> adapts itself to that alone which is present at the moment. While man, okay, here it is, because he is endowed with reason, 
by which he comprehends the chain of consequences, perceives the causes of things, understands the relation of cause to effect and of effect to cause, draws analogies and connects and associates the present and the future, easily surveys the course of his whole life and makes the necessary preparations for his conduct. So the first thing that I'm highlighting from Cicero here is, and like so many other philosophers around him, is this recognition that one of the distinctive features about us is our ability to reason. It is light years above the rest of creation, every other animal. There's not an animal that comes close. And as much as we love, like, you know, the, the Disney, like animal stories of chimpanzees who have these emotive relationships with one another and all this stuff, like they are not even scratching the surface of what we can do. And I just think it's such a like a mind blowing thing you think about that we are able to 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 comprehend or perceive the chain of consequences, perceive the causes of things so that we can look back. So we're here in this moment right now. All of us are sharing this moment together. Right. We're, we're in a moment. This moment keeps on passing and we're we're staying in the moment. But we have the ability to remove ourselves from this moment in our minds and reconstruct an entire world and sense of existence in our memories of what it was like to hear what I said, for instance, at the very beginning of class. If I were to ask you all, what did I talk about? You're probably not going to remember that. But what did you have for breakfast or, you know, whatever stuck out to you when you woke up this morning, you could take yourself back to that place and literally fabricate all of it together again, albeit in a adult form, which is unbelievable. Like it's as if you are there when you really stop to place yourself, you can even smell the smell. You can have a physiological reaction to something that's not even real anymore. But not only that, what does he say? He says, um, he says, uh, so to perceive the effects, the cause, draw analogies, connect, associate, easily surveys the course of his whole life and makes the necessary preparations for conduct. So not only can you construct this fiction of a world that actually did exist at one point, you can construct an entire world that has yet to come into being and may never come into being. And you can construct not just one, but you can construct a myriad of them and all the infinite possibilities of what could happen and then affect your life, order your life in such a way as to try to achieve it. What other creation or creature can do that? This, by my estimation, is a distinctive feature of what it means to be made in the image of God. So we'll we'll talk about that. But even these non-Christian people who had no understanding of who Jesus was, very little, if any at all, obviously Cicero, before Jesus ever stepped on the scene, he's tapping into, he's discerning, and so many of the other philosophers that came before him and came after him did the same. He says, and it is no mean manifestation of nature and reason that man is the only animal that has a feeling for order, for propriety, for moderation in word and deed. And so no other animal has a sense of beauty, loveliness, harmony in the visible world, and nature and reason extending the analogy of this form, uh, of this analogy from the world. And so it's not just this amazing ability to reason It's also this amazing and complex ability to sense and tap in to this intangible thing called beauty. Animals cannot do this as far as we know. 
but we can tap in with ourselves that is a part of our mind, but it's deeper seated in our, and this goes back to the, the soul language, this transcendent connection in the world. So when we see an amazing sunset or we go to the mountains or we stand on the edge of the beach or whatever it is for you, maybe it's you, you love, you know, um, Bach or, you know, maybe something more contemporary and whatever it is for you, poems. I hope that all of us, at least the adults in the room, have had a moment where we felt we were transported by beauty from ourselves to something bigger than ourselves. That is an amazingly complex and mysterious feature of human nature. And I can explain or try to explain that when we get into kind of the the biblical discussion there. But this is unique to us, and, and he's right to point it out, okay? Okay, it's 1017, so I should probably stop there. So that means we'll pick up with Descartes and finish out the philosophy section uh, next week. Um, How's that sound? Okay. All right. So, Lord, thank you for our our day today. And, um, Lord, help us to grapple with these things. Help us to be in awe, even where we see truth that's not primarily in Scripture, but that has been picked up and discerned by people throughout the ages. Let us see it. Let us um, exult in it because it helps us to better understand you and ourselves. Um, But let us transform the natural revelation into the supernatural, the special revelation as it comes under the light of Scripture. Um, And then let us translate that back to a dying world who desperately wants a picture of what it means to be made whole and to flourish. Help us today as we come into worship at the, in the worship service together to encounter you and to experience your presence. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.